0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway
0: to the evil worlds
1: beyond. Ready to go, Doc?
2: Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll just
0: check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. This is episode 29, uh, featuring Swords in the Mist by Fritz Leiber. I'm your host, Hoy, and with me as always is that lanky barbarian, Jeff Goad. (laughs) Hello, everybody. And this week, we're very excited to have our special guest, Joey Royale, founder of Drinking and Dragons. Hello, Joey. Hello,
1: friends. How are you guys? Great to be here.
0: Yay, Joey. So, Joey, um, how did you get started in gaming, and when did you become aware of Appendix N as a concept, if at all?
1: I, I'm a relative newcomer. I'm 38 years old, and I just started playing um, probably just two years ago. But it's always been something that's been lurking behind me. Um, it started out as a morbid curiosity. There is a, um, a house we used to drive by in the town next to me, uh, that was known as the Dungeons and Dragons Murder House. Uh, that was in the <laughs> that was in the early eighties and was um, part of the Satanic Panic. There's articles about it. Um, so that always lingered there. And I think at an early age too, at the mall, I came across one of those Jack Chick religious tracks that somebody had dropped. Yeah, the um, the infamous Dark Dungeon one, where it said basically <laughs> it said if you start playing Dungeons and Dragons, you immediately Um, turn into a cultist and end up killing your friends so growing up with that and then that kind of um you know at the same time Saturday morning cartoons that Dungeons and Dragons cartoon was on so there's like this real discrepancy is like what, what is this thing so I was always interested but I never knew anybody that played I just happened to be walking by the gaming section of a bookstore um and I came across the DCC rpg book and that just blew my mind just i judged a book by its cover and i've never looked back (laughs) it's just an epic you know barbarian on the side of the chevy van from the 70s and i just fell in love and never never looked back
0: what an amazing way to start your first game to get right into dcc it's just crazy yeah (laughs) i was um i was very lucky to have that experience
1: for that one to be my first
2: and you're clearly a highly motivated person because for somebody who's only been gaming for two years, how long have you been running Drinking and Dragons? And tell us about Drinking and Dragons.
1: So Drinking and Dragons is an event um, that I started. Um, now I have uh, a, a panel, a council of the drunken masters, five of my friends that <laughs> that helped me put this on because we've gotten big. Basically, I didn't, uh, my friends and my the people I hung out with um, were, did not play and I had nobody to play with. I was that. Little guy who had nobody to play Dungeons and Dragons with. So I said, I'm going to do something about it. Um, I found a, um, a restaurant on its last legs, a tavern, if you will. And I said, hey, would you mind if I brought in a bunch of people? We'll order food and we're going to play some tabletop games. And they said, sure. Made a poster, uh, talked to some of my friends that worked out at a comic book store, and it all fell into place. Got bigger and bigger. We are now in a uh, building that was once a science museum. And we have full run of that. It's bring your own food, bring your own beverage. And it's very uh, charity-based now, too.
2: And it's also surrounded by a haunted witchwood. Yes,
1: on Gallows Lane.
2: <laughs> so anybody who's in the Northeast the, uh, United States, I've got to say, I've been to Drinking and Dragons. What have I been to, three or four of them?
1: Yeah, I think and, you've been to about four. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And my God, they are so much fun. And if you get a chance to sign up for a game that Joey's running, Joey is an incredible judge.
1: <laughs> highly recommend it. That means a lot to me. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome, buddy. So,
0: so Joe, <clears throat> did you hear of Appendix N? Were you reading any of the fiction that was in Appendix N before uh, started gaming, or was it through DCC and the and the reprinting of Appendix N list in the back of a DCC book?
1: And
2: also, you have to tell us about to tell our listeners about Book Barn.
0: Of course, of course.
1: <laughs> so, um, uh, Hoy, or I maybe. started reading uh, Appendix N even before I knew it was Appendix N. Um, you know, starting out with Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. Um, And then, as Jeff had mentioned, I am very, very lucky. Uh, Close to my home in Niantic, Connecticut, there's a uh, series of stores called The Book Barn. And one of the stores is basically just religion, gaming, fantasy, and horror. (laughs) I like how they have religion mixed (laughs) in there, too. I think that's a Mm -hmm. statement they're trying to make. But um, (laughs) you you walk in, and you can just smell the pulp, and it's just – just rooms and rooms of fantasy paperbacks all for a dollar. And then there's a hard book, hard, um, hardcover section as well. And they're like four. So if anybody's in Niantic, Connecticut, check out the book barn. Um, they, I, I've, I found everything from every liber to manly Wade Wellman. So I was just reading this stuff because I thought it was cool. I always was a comic book guy and, you know, Savage Swords of Conan and I'm like, well, let's see what's, where all this came from. So I've been reading that. And then when I found DCC, I'm like, Oh, okay. This all makes sense now.
0: That's amazing. And you are basically in the, the edge or the heart of Lovecraft country. So it makes sense that these yes. uh, fixations that you might have. And, well, like, I think we both I've share. I've seen
1: those things. Yeah. I've seen those things. Yeah. I've heard their clawing on my walls. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Fantastic.
2: Yeah. Well, Joey, it's awesome having you on here. And the book that we're discussing today is Fritz Leiber's Swords in the Mist. And the copy I have is all kinds of beat to hell.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is falling apart. It is cover- It is uh, kept together with scotch tape at this moment, but it is one of the uh, it is one of the ace paperback copies. Yeah. And with me, I've got the 1968 ace paperback and it's got the uh, Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover. What-, what is even happening on the cover here? It's I can't like even tell
0: is being swallowed by the mist, but I think it might be fabric, but it's hard to tell.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I love Jeffrey Catherine Jones' works, but I, I feel like this might just be really poor photography of what's potentially yeah. a, a, a good painting. Do you, do you have the
1: same one, Joey? I do. I have the same one. I'm looking at. It looks a little blurry, but epic nonetheless. Right.
0: Today, I have the ebook, and uh, I was alternating between the ebook and the White Wolf hardcover, uh, Lean Times and Lankmar, which includes Swords in the Mist and the subsequent volume. And so, I'm diving back and forth between the two of those. Um, this one actually also has interesting because it has an office forward from 1977. I don't know if that's in your paperback copies from Fritz Leiber. It is not. Okay. Um, so that one's pretty interesting. So it gives a little bit of context about when the stories were written. Um, so. Yeah, and uh, specifically mentions uh, Lovecraftian uh, Lovecraftian entities in the uh, in the introduction here that Fritz Leiber wrote in nineteen seventy seven. So this might have been for that hardcover from the Greg the Greg Press hardcovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe reprinted in there. Before I guess we need to do our high gaxian word of the week, yes?
2: Yes, so <laughs> our high gaxian word of the week is Troll <coughs> troll. And oh, troll, not troll. Not troll, troll. <laughs> T-R-U-L-L. And troll is a prostitute and we find troll on page 12 of swords in the mists and it says <clears throat> the mouser said dryly i already smelled dead fish burnt fat horse dung tickly lint lankmar sausage gone stale cheap temple incense burnt by the 10 pound cake Rancid oil, moldy grain, slaves' barracks, embalmer's tanks crowded to the black brim, and the stink of the cathedral, full of unwashed carters and trolls, celebrating orgiastic rites. And now you tell me of a taint? <laughs> wow! <laughs> and not only is that just a really fantastic little section of uh, of Mouser dialogue. Another reason I really am tickled by the word troll and think it makes a great Hygaxian word of the day is because on page 192 of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, there is the infamous random harlot encounters table. And when you, if you want to roll a random encounter with yeah. a harlot, you roll a D100. And if you roll a 1 to a 10, you encounter a slovenly troll. <laughs> So, yeah, that's that's (laughs) those dirty dogs. (laughs) So, Joey, what did you think of Swords in the Mist?
1: Uh, It was awesome. Such such great heights and then some also some very uh, deep lows. Um, (laughs) uh, It what an illustration of Liber as a writer. Um, I just did a little bit of research into the background on the individual stories. Um, Okay, tell us. Just, just from you know, I love just a, in a broad stroke, lean times in Lankmar. Just learning about the religions of Lankmar—that's uh, kind of like his um, his patrons and deities thing. And then when you, but when I got to Adept's Gambit, which is the last story in my copy, I I had to reread that a couple of times. I was kind of um, I was, I'll just I was confused. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. but as I looked into the history of it, I don't have the, the whole history and so I won't go too deep, but this was the beginning. This was the, the kind of prototype, I guess, for, for the great Master in Fafford. um, starting out in, on earth. And I believe there was a lot of conversation between
0: Liber and Lovecraft during this time. Yeah, that's what I heard too. No, I, I believe I heard that. I believe that Lovecraft read it in manuscript and said, yeah, "I like what you're doing. Yeah. To keep it up." Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> so
2: wait, so this was this was the first Fafford, Fafford and Graymouser*.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, and it was not published until 1947. Okay. Um, so that's you can see sort of a, a, as you say a prototype story, and that's why it's sort of set in historical era and. And I think one of the things I heard was Libra said, "Oh, I wanted to do this because I wasn't sure people would believe it." And left, right, like, eh, right, just do, go right. straight fantasy. Don't don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Interesting. Now, was Ningobble part of it originally, or was that added in
0: um, later? My impression was that that was always there. Uh, it's just that he he just couldn't quite create a secondary world. He was afraid of creating a secondary world like Nilwan at that point. So that was you know.
2: fascinating. Yeah. I would not have thought that Ningobble was in the first of the Pafford and Gray Master
0: stories. Yeah. yeah, that I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting. Maybe Michael Curtis has more insight into that once he's right. done his oh, I'm uh, sure he does. research into the, uh, you know, the, the library uh, um, archive down in Texas. Yeah, we yeah.
2: need to get him on the show at some yeah. point soon.
1: So I think the wow. wrong branch too, I think the wrong branch was written afterwards to make some kind of a connection to what was mm-hmm. going on in the rest of the book. I would agree. It seems like there, there are
2: six stories in this collection. There's the cloud of hate, Lean Times and Linkmar, Their Mistress the Sea, When the Sea King's Away, The Wrong Branch, and Aedip's Gambit. And I would say that really it's only four stories. I think Their Mistress the Sea and The Wrong Branch really are just kind of like short, kind of like just several pages that are just kind of trying to link the two stories.
0: Essentially vignettes.
2: Yeah, they're almost kind of like those uh, Elspreg de Camp uh, little italicized paragraphs at the beginning of each story trying to catch us up with what happened between the two stories. But there's a slightly more ver- verbose version of that. Right. I guess it gets a
0: little bit of characterization in which was never something that, you know, sprague Camp was strong with. So you get to see a little bit of their personalities in those little interstitial bits, but it's definitely not a story as such. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now, Joey, it sounds to me like you're saying that Lean Times and Linkmar is your favorite from the collection and Adams Gambit is your least favorite. And if that is what you're saying, I agree 100%.
1: Yeah, that is, that is what I'm saying. I mean, I definitely found some great things in Adepts Gambit,
0: but um, out of out of the, the hole, that was my least favorite. How about you, Hoy? Um, I would tend to agree. You can see that he's working stuff out. I mean, definitely Fafford and the Mouser are there, almost full-blown, but the focus isn't on them as much as you would think because it's that really long story within a story that Ahura uh, is telling about her youth and then uh, you know things like that that just kind of take the emphasis away. Um you know, I think they meant Ningabo was there, but they haven't mentioned Shilba at this point. So, mm-hmm. Shilba's not there. So, it's like the pieces are starting to be there. But, of course, all the, the other thing that's missing is Lankmar is not there. Yeah. Which yeah. is a character yeah. in itself. Right. And so, um, you and you
2: can have great Fafnir and great Marissa stories without Lankmar, but like just the whole the whole flavor of the world was missing by setting it in our world. Right,
0: right. Lankmar is sort of the thing that lurks in the background, and, and it's, you know, it's the uh, the base note, yeah, you know, so to speak. And um, for
2: those listening who aren't aware of what happened in this, they actually go through the Ningalos caves and come out into our world, and they're like in old
0: Persia or something. Right? Yes, right, uh, Yeah. just after Alexander had. Past, I guess, sort of pre four before the Romans, but after the sort of whole Ptolemaic Wars and stuff like that.
2: It um, is interesting to find out, though, that Na- that oh, I'm sorry that uh, Lankmar is kind of um, Fritz Leiber's version of Alexandria.
0: Right, right. I guess the the most cosmopolitan city of the ancient world is, I guess, in his mind. You know, it's a major port and it's a center of learning, but it has also, you know, high to low. I Yeah.
2: Guess. Um, and it's obvious that the cold waste is, is you know, the Scandinavian countries, but I know that Mauser is supposedly from Tyre, which I'd never, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm really ignorant. What is Tyre? Do you guys know?
0: Um, it is a city on the coast of Lebanon. Oh, okay. Lebanon. Oh, yes. okay. Yeah. yeah. And so that whole beginning there is basically in Lebanon um, and they're just hanging out there and they, you know, they work their way sort of up and down around the Mediterranean before they go further into Persia for this adventure that they're on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a strange... I think the main reason it's included in this collection is obviously because it is of historical interest. Um, and, you know, why waste a, a great long beginning story? So they put it back in, and they had to write that interstitial thing to somehow justify and sort of retcon them being in our real world, you know, so to speak.
2: And the completest in me is glad that it's there, but I... I would also love it if it had had it just been like seriously edited <laughs> down and right. moved into our world. And
0: um, you know, again, you know that me, I'm not usually the person who is particularly sensitive to um, sort of weird depiction stuff. But this is one extremely homophobic moment. When he's pretending to be the eunuch, when he spreads, he's spreading out the like the the charms and stuff like that, and he's lisping. That was horrible. Producer. That oh, didn't make yeah, yeah. any. Not only was it <laughs>
1: offensive, but it made no <laughs> yeah. sense in the grand yeah. scheme of things. These characters have never yeah. portrayed themselves, performed in that manner before, too. It just stuck out like a sore thumb to me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, it's very much a prototype. I don't hold anything against it, but it's like okay, it's there. It's a historical interest. It's like a uh-huh. like a. Um, like a uh, Early photocopied, you know, fanzine version of and The Gray Master* in my mind, almost.
2: <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting, though, about speaking of like homophobia is like there, there was there was a moment too, though, where he real, where he recognizes that Ahora yes. has some kind of a male energy about her. And he says something along the lines of uh, like, oh, well, I've, I've seen many of the, the, the painted men who, who, who dress up like women or something. And some of them are very convincing. And he seems to kind of say that almost with zero judgment, though. Like it's just kind of part of the world. Right. And I've almost never kind of seen that portrayed as a part of a fantasy world before.
0: Right, right. And so that's what's so jarring about that passage, that other passage, because they're almost yeah. within a couple pages of it. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Strange. That
2: yeah. is interesting. So Joey, talk to us about um, what you liked about Lean Times and Lankmar.
0: If any story
1: that I've read of libraries could be cinematically adapted uh for the masses, I think that's the one. Just from great adventure to amazing humor, all building yes. up with um I don't know, should I should, the spoiler at the end? Sure. Where where <laughs> where Fafford comes out as as the um they they feel that he after all he was tied up to a bed, you know, they got him drunk after after um being a teetotaler for a while. Those are in that story, Fafford and Gray Mouser are significantly different, uh, at that point in their life. Um, Fafford, uh, Fafford is clean shaven and he's celibate and a teetotaler and, and, um, basically, uh, as, as a, an altar boy for this unknown, you know, forgotten minor God.
2: Isak of the Jug.
1: <laughs> yes, Isak of the Jug. And that that's wonderful. So at the end, basically, he becomes Isak of the Jug, or that's what the town thinks he is as he rips himself free of this bed, but he still has the, the wood on his shoulders, almost like a crucifix, and he barrels through. It just – um but it was neat to see the gang get back together because for the yeah. majority of the story, they're they're not the team. They've gone their separate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it, we never really know why, but possibly because of the mispronunciation of Thafford's name that they got into <laughs> a row. Uh, I think that's one of the the, the barroom stories
0: that was passed right. around. They just had it with each other. Right. Um, I could almost see this being like a uh, Steven Soderbergh heist movie. Yes. But- <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, right.
2: Oh yeah, and the climax is so hilarious and it <laughs> builds up to it so so perfectly too. You know, I, I think so far in my appendix and reading, there have only I, it's rare where a piece of fiction will make me actually laugh out yes. loud. Right. And so far in my appendix and reading that's only happened twice, and it happened at the very, very end of Eyes of the Overworld where Kujol is suddenly like thrown right back to where. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just cackling as I'm like reading this book and it also happened to me with the end of Lean Times and Lankmar. Lean Times and Lankmar might be my favorite Faffer and gray master story I've read so far, period.
1: I would I would have to exactly. agree with you. I mean just just the architecture of the plot line and when you see all the little dots tie together at the end for that very cinematic um, hilarious scene And then it kind of – but it it does end, too, with kind of like a a poignant moment with Fafford kind of saying, you know, I was Isik then. And it just – I I like to reflect on that a little bit. That's a neat kind of um, self-reflection on religion a little bit. Intentional or not, I don't know.
2: Yeah, and it's something he's played with before, which I really like because also in the previous collection of stories, he's got the story about Taya. And it's really not clear whether Taya – is a god or not, if it's just kind of like a woman who's gone mad, or if she actually is possessed by this god or not. And here we're reading this story. And from our perspective, it's very obvious that Fafford is not Isak of the jug. But then like the last line of the story is him saying, actually I was. Yeah. And it's it's neat because the way th- the way that magic is portrayed in Linkmar, it's very real. It's very obvious. It's it's just as much a part of the world as technology is in ours. But the way that the divine and the gods are portrayed in the world of Naewon is also very much like ours. Like, you know, there there are miracles that may or may not be explainable by the divine or may be explained by anything completely mundane. It kind of depends on how you want to interpret it. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, There's always that level of ambiguity. And and I almost think that's... um, Fritz Leiber is one of those guys who's kind of working it out in his own mind, mm-hmm. you know, in the fiction and, and you know, he's, he's never going to tell you 100% what he thinks, but yeah. it's, it's a way for him to play with this. Um, yeah. to play with this and, and, and think about it and, and look at it from all sides. Can you can, cause you can also see that both Fafford and the mouse are in their quieter moments in the various stories are, are actually both self-aware and then oddly unaware of certain aspects of their personalities. And yeah. so it's, it's a fun way to look at them and, and broaden their personalities and get to know them a little better.
2: And I had an observation that I'm curious what you guys think about and if you guys agree with me on. I know that um, I know that Fritz Leiber has always said that he's – that Fafford is kind of his uh, – the stand-in for himself and that the Gray Mouser is the stand-in for Otto Fisher. Is that correct? Right. And I know that in Lean Times and Lankmar, Fafford has gone sober. And he has not had a drink for a year. Mm. And then finally, when he does have a drink, he goes completely <laughs> insane with it and like is running around trying to find more and more wine. And I also know from reading a little bit about Fritz life that he struggled with alcoholism his whole life. Mm. Uh, that was a, a big thing for him. And so that's a pretty obvious connection there. But where I'm taking it to the next level is I noticed that in the Fafford and Gray Master stories, there's often a theme of one or both of them having their wills taken over by an outside force, and they're forced to do things, and they're kind of acting as passengers within their own body. And we also have a similar thing with Ahura and her brother in Adam's Gambit, where they're kind of stuck in their body, witnessing somebody else acting through their eyes. And I wonder if in some ways that was kind of Fritz Leiber writing about his experience with his alcoholism, when you know he would just get so drunk and he would just kind of become this other person. Mm-hmm. I, I, obviously we have no way of knowing that, but I don't know what do you I think, think you're onto something.
1: That? I think just Libra really deals with um, free will and responsibility and the struggle with free will in a lot of these stories. Even even the the most comic, there's I think you're right, there's the like the, the always that haunting specter of possession, whether it demonic, otherworldly mm-hmm. or you know alcohol.
0: I would layer on another uh, bit to that, which is actually a socioeconomic layer, which is I understand that, for example, initially they were very much partners and that they were still friends throughout their life. But, you know, basically Harry Otto Fisher had to give up writing because he had to basically, he and his wife had to support themselves. Mm. And, and, you know, Liber was always alternating between being, you know, having money for having just written a story and then not having any money until he was rediscovered basically in the, you know, late 50s. So there's that element of, basically not having free will because you don't have economic choice in a sense. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) You know, so layered on with that, with the alcohol and, you know, as you say, and, and, you know, um, other sort of compulsive aspects of their personalities. So um, yeah, I think that there's always that. Yeah. I know that Harry Otto Fisher. Yeah. I think he would manage a box company for his entire life paper, you know, cardboard box company, Mm. Um, but that they remain friends all the way up through, you know, the, early eighties or when they both passed away, you know? So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot going on there and, and, um, is clearly a man with, um, multiple layers of analysis of mm-hmm. himself. And I think, but he plays that out in his personality, his uh, characters. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Yeah. So in addition to the two stories we've been talking about a great deal, there are two other kind of, um, like, uh, kind of longer short stories in here. There's the cloud of hate mm-hmm. and there's, um, when the sea king's away, what did you guys think of those? Cloud of Hate
1: might be my second favorite. Um, not to speak yeah. in hyperbole the whole time, but I really, really love this one. Uh, it's a great way to start the book. I just love the image of these two guys sitting around the fire, um, just, just you know, having a dude conversation back and forth. It was really cool to see their their uh, personalities come through while the rest of the town. Is just being set ablaze with this hate coming from this. Uh, I also love the image of the giant underground cult right beneath the city, mm-hmm. and you're just seeing the um, the tendrils of mist coming up and and tapping people on the shoulder and making them do horrific things. I thought that was just so awesome and over the top in terms
0: of adventure. Yes, it's an incredibly visual story. And that's maybe another thing yeah. that we haven't talked about is how much Liber is a visual writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's giving me a lot of credit for his dialogue. And stuff yeah. like that. But he is a very... You can imagine every scene that he puts before you.
2: I feel like that's especially true in Linkmar, too. Yeah. I feel like he does such a good job of evoking the city feel. Mm-hmm. And what I think is neat about this, this cult of hate who's kind of all gathered around in this in this temple and chanting and bringing forth this like mist of hate is that I can picture very easily you know, a small group of kind of ne'er dwells doing something something like this. But Liber talks about how like the 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 worshipers are in the thousands. So it's it's fascinating to me that there are like these thousands of people who are all so angry with their lot in life that they just want to create like this this mist monster that's just like gonna like rape and kill everything or cause everybody else to go around like maiming and murdering and stealing.
0: It's uh, it's a subreddit before.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Naywan (laughs) 4chan.
1: Yeah, there were definitely, as I was reading this, there was definitely some analogies uh, to current events going on. Always in the back (laughs) of my mind. (laughs) Exactly. Uh. there's, There's that whole let it burn
2: mentality that um, definitely is around today and is a big part of that story. What did you guys think of When the Sea King's Away?
0: That one felt very, very much like a uh, a DCC adventure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Start to like finish, that, that was like, alright, when do I have to roll? Right. <laughs> when is this bad thing that I am going to inflict upon myself going to happen? <laughs> now? Now, now, <laughs> now.
2: <laughs> exactly, the, the, and the the constant the constant tips that like you probably shouldn't be yeah. down here because like you know they're they're underwater and they're kind of in this like this like basically a tent of right magic right but it's con- it's leaking right. and like big sections of it are kind of like starting to collapse right. and it's like and-
0: dead- the sea life is just flopping and dying at their feet <laughs> and they're like, crawling through the mud
1: and Mauser Mouser <laughs> comes right out and says it. he says dude like stop touching the the wall this you know what stop touching the water <laughs> and he, and i think i think the like oh you mean like this like this and he has the torch like, oh man. oh it's fine yeah he puts <laughs> you're going to die
0: right. right he keeps on sagging yeah. lower and lower <laughs> around the- <laughs> <laughs> that was a great one. That was that was yeah. adventure through and through. And yeah, I can I mean I can almost see like the Doug, yeah. the Doug Kovacs map in like in my mind. Sure, sure. This- <laughs> 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 so, and uh yeah, once again it places sort of like that that sort of uh I don't want to use that word codependent, but just the way that they just like sort of like both bring out the best and the worst in each other, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> you know so. Yeah, definitely. That
1: little up. part about the the boat,
0: <laughs> the miniature
1: boat that was in the pool. Oh, that was cool. Yeah, that was really cool. That was really smart because Oh, I will say there was.
2: I I found parts of this story very confusing. Though, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, Jeff. I I didn't understand the geography at all because I, I was very confused about how they were. Underground in the bottom of the ocean, underwater in the bottom of the ocean. But then they would go through a tunnel, and then they would be suddenly on a beach, and and then, but they're on the beach, and then there's this this wall that's it. It wasn't making sense to me.
0: I mean, all I can remember is basically, essentially, there's a a, a very sharp cliff that basically divided the inner ocean and the outer ocean, and they had been be, be calmed on one side of it, and so they'd climb the cliff, and then then Found that there was nothing other th- on the other side except more ocean because they thought it was going to be a plateau of land and maybe they mm-hmm. could find food. So they climbed back down to their boat, and then when they went down to this whirlpool, they sort of sussed out that they were under that cliff. But yeah, I think this one again, in fact, maybe really does call for the to drop. I think first. so. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah I, I really needed a visual aid to yeah. understand what's going on here. <laughs> I, I
1: love Liber, and um, I read a lot of his stories, but they're not—they're not easy reads especially when it comes to geography and the the little vignettes that happen with, you know, the stories within the story. So I do find myself having to stop, take a break and read a couple of pages again every so often because I'll get lost.
0: You know, I was thinking that just on the way over. It's like, wait, this is a very slim book. And then why is it taking me yes. so long yeah. to get through this one? And not in a bad way, but it's like, oh, this one does reward a little bit more of kind of sipping, savoring yeah. it mm-hmm. rather than just like barreling it through it. Like a, like a Robert robbery e. hour story would, would, you know, take you through. Okay. That's you know my take on it. Um, and,
2: and I know that Fritz Leiber, um, I, I recently read a letter that Fritz Leiber had written to Tim Kask and in it, he, they were discussing some of the, the link TSR products. And I think something to do with dragon magazine, I forget, but in it, Fritz Leiber was saying that, like, he never had any intention. Mm-hmm. Like, Fritz Leiber didn't need to know, like, the hit points of his <laughs> characters or or have all this stuff worked out to that level because he didn't really care. And that if in, that there's a lot of the mysteries that he doesn't even know himself because if he knew the answers to the mysteries, they would cease to be mysterious, mm-hmm. which I think is really fun and interesting, but also makes it hard for you know kind of codifying this stuff in a gaming sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely be interested to see how well. It happens in DCC Magmar. I'm
2: very excited for
0: that. I mean, to the credit. And we're not the, ad- that far from it. Right, right. In the actual ADD context, and this is how I was introduced to Fafford and Great Mouser, was actually his mm-hmm. and demigods. And I recall that they actually statted them up you know, reasonably well. I mean, like, oh, I can definitely see this correlation between how they chose to stat up you know, the Cloud of Hate or Issac of the Jug. Yeah. And I think Issac of the Jug was listed as a demigod and um it was of uh, this great Janelle Jack- Jackway's illustrations in that chapter. Um so if you guys uh find it, I won't say where. It's out there on the web. <laughs> you, know, you can find the the uh the uh pre um Edited version of 80s and Demigod, the first printing, first through third printings is there out there on the web in PDF if you know where to look, and just look at that chapter; it's really, really amazing.
2: Now, Joey, are you a uh, Kickstarter uh, Kickstarter backer of no, the new Link? No, I,
0: I missed
1: that bus. Um, You're not, but I will be gobbling up all of that when it comes out. I, I miss that. I was, uh, <laughs> I was still relatively new, uh, and uh, I've only recently started to do Kickstarters. I'm kind of behind the times, man. I got to tell you, <laughs> with all this stuff. <laughs> With all this technology stuff. But, uh, <laughs> That's too funny when it comes to gaming. Yeah.
2: So I'm curious from uh, from having read these stories while you're reading them, were were you having any kind of aha moments with why the Thafford and Greymaster stories are listed as part of the appendix N and maybe kind of specifically like parts of these stories, how they may have inspired early gaming?
1: Yeah, it was it was pretty clear for me right out of the gate with Cloud of Hate, um, just that as a as a mm-hmm. monster. You know, even having that Achilles heel, uh, almost literally that little red strand that he had to snap. Um, but to me, also, it's it's um, the episodic nature of it as well, uh, where the the little stories in between are almost like side quests, mm-hmm. like an urban crawl kind of thing with with a cloud of hate and with lean times and blankmar. Obviously, uh, deities and demigods that was all over there. Yeah. Uh, the, just the, the role they play in the every man's life, um, the, the, the pan- how the pantheon interacts with each other, even down to, you know, holy relics and, and magic items of that ilk when Mouser is basically exploiting all the other uh, the religious followers. He's selling his trinkets that he knows have no power, but he sees what it does to the people's eyes, like how they <laughs> light up and like, oh, I have this divine power now that I have this trinket. So, yeah, I saw a lot of. Um, the early gaming and that,
2: yeah totally and i f- I feel like in uh, in cloud of hate, especially i I think you brought up some really great points there um, in addition to that, you know as as the as the mist would come and it would tap people on the shoulder, they would instantly just kind of become like enraged and become violent and angry and evil. But when it comes up to Fafford and Gray Mouser, they both got to make a save versus spells and they both passed their save versus spells. So they were okay. You know, so it was it was kind of interesting kind of seeing that in action as well. It's like if if you are if you are heroic, you're somebody who may be able to muster up the will needed to to get yourself out of that situation.
1: Yeah. and, And Mouser as the you know, as the quintessential thief dodging you know i'm just thinking agility checks the whole time or sneak checks he's doing yep, these yep. constant ninja moves and the distinct fighting style compared to fafford where he's making those mighty deeds
2: yeah definitely and, and i'm with you on the urban adventures too because urban adventures have been around since the since the early days of the game you know the the judges guild uh, city of the invincible overlord feels so link to me
0: without a doubt without a doubt and i think what they did and that's that. Clearly drawn as I recall, there was always like a little short sentence saying how this character had a, person, a certain kind of personality in the Judges Guild, and Lyra is so effective at sort of sketching out personalities very quickly. Yes. Of the various people, like especially in Lean Time to Langmore, like you know the the Polk's henchmen, like Grilly and Quas, yes. and all them, and how how Grilly is sort of essentially um, jealous of of Mouser because they're sort of very similar in their skill sets. Um, I like still like the bit with the kids are sort of standing there trying to figure out whether they want to poke uh Baffer with a <laughs> pin just to see if he's really involved.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and he does such a great job of doing that without without really telling us. And that's part of what why why um A-Dub's Gambit is is kind of a slog because it's a lot of him just telling us stuff. But in Lean Times and Lankmar, it's great because he doesn't just tell us things, he illustrates it with like the actions of the kids or like the, the little bits of dialogue that we get from, from these goons right. that tell us so much about their characters. But one thing that's I think obviously very different about Lankmar versus City of the Invincible Overlord or Waterdeep is that Lankmar is just humans. Mm-hmm. And there are some there are some anything that's non human is very strange and very alien and may- maybe just whispered about, but certainly isn't walking around openly on the streets. And I don't know, Joey, how do you feel about a world of demi-humans and sub-races versus a very human-centric fantasy world?
1: For my gaming, yeah. Um, that's a really good question that I've never really thought about. Uh, I think I think it's almost... Um... When you have a lack of demi humans uh, at my table, I think you we almost have to push up the level of magic to make it fantastic. Otherwise, you're just you're running a Conan the Barbarian game, and that's just only from my my personal view. Mm-hmm. Um, I play with a bunch of newbies as well who are awesome uh, in their in their choices in their imagination, but they're basically playing playing humans. And not all the time spellcasters, mostly yeah. like, um, you know, warriors and thieves. So I am actually playing a very library centered um, game. So I feel that as the DM, I'm injecting much more supernatural and magic to kind of balance that out.
0: I go back and forth. I think that um, I definitely don't like a, a sort of stew pot, anything goes kind of game. Mm-hmm. So lately I've been running a game that's very much in sort of the mode of you know, dark forest fairy tale. So in that, in that particular game, it's very appropriate to have, you know, a certain level of demihumans. although I, I still don't have elves yet as player characters, because I want to keep them kind of mysterious, but I definitely think for an urban game, uh, if you want to create a more swords and sorcery game, then yeah, I think it's um, having demihumans sort of takes you out of that a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you know, I think there's probably ways to do it, but, but, you know, here, you know, um, in the urban game, especially in Lankmar, you sort of you kind of use these sort of ethnic stereotypes or ethnic tropes to sort of represent. That. And a lot of times, a lot of time demi humans are given sort of ethnic tropes. The, the, That's true. The uh, dwarves are always either Scottish or you know you know Scandinavian. Yeah. You know, halflings are you know just like rural English people or something like that. Sure, sure. Um, They're the farming folk. The farming folk. Although there's, I think, ways we could think about them that could sort of make them more interesting in that uh, as well. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I think it is maybe a little bit of a hard sell for a lot of people to play a sort of straight human-centric game because, you know, um, you, you have to make sure that the people you're playing with are on the same wavelength. If that's yeah,
2: that's true. To. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, they want to play something interesting. And I think a lot of people think <laughs> that by being an, by playing an elf that automatically makes your character interesting. But I'm I'm, I'm more intrigued by players who can make a human fighter interesting just by being a human fighter. Mm-hmm. But for, for my for my campaign world, I definitely prefer kind of a more human-centric world. And but I also lean way more towards sword and sorcery than I do high fantasy. But even in a high fantasy world, like I like how in in Tolkien's world, you know, you don't really you don't have any cities where humans, elves, dwarves, and halflings are all living together in peace. That that just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to a dwarven mine and you go to like a, a like a secret elven city uh, but they all kind of like they're all kind of their own kind of fantastic places. Right, right.
0: And it definitely creates more of a sense of wonder than if they're just you know someone you see across the street. Yeah. You know, on a daily basis. So,
2: so in my appendix and reading, I think this is my first underwater adventure.
0: Uh, wasn't there one of the other ones from the and Grey Greymaster one where they were in the uh, the temple where they had the sort of the. Well,
2: that had risen in kind no, of a true. Dagon style. Got it, got it, so it's something it. from Under the Sea, got but it. they weren't actually underwater themselves. Did sure. Have you guys done any real kind of underwater adventuring? Because I never really have. And I've got far more experience than, than you do, Joey. Joey, have you done any underwater adventuring?
1: I have not. I brainstorm some ways to make it happen eventually for the characters that we're playing with. But I, I haven't found anything yet that has really um, made me confident enough to run a setting like that.
2: And aesthetically, are you into the idea of, like, riding giant seahorses? Oh, absolutely. With your, with... <laughs>
1: are you kidding me? Mermaids and, I mean, you know, all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. You're talking to a guy who makes mummified mermaids yes. as a hobby in my basement. Uh,
0: Fiji, Fiji mermaids? <laughs>
1: absolutely, Hoy. You know it. Tim, Tim Deschen has one, I think, at his house he got for his birthday one year. It's pretty disgusting. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's um, Underwater Adventures. Well, there's that one little bit in um, – What's that one, the Paul Anderson one, where he's, he's sucked underwater by the dryad? And he's like,
2: oh, yeah, hey. that's true. By the Nixie. By the Nixie. The, by the Nixie.
0: Um, they're always tricky because how do you make it feel like it's really underwater as opposed to just like, are you just hand-waving them, not being able to breathe? Yeah, do know?
2: they just have like a magical air bubble around their right, head? You know,
0: what, is, what is it that makes it feel like it's underwater? Because you don't have, uh, usually it's theater to the mind, so obviously it's depending on your verbal skill and, and the buy-in of the players to make sure that, that you know they can do that. Um, but you don't have all those visuals of like you know the the subaqueous light you know being very dim and you know are they crawling through the muck or are they swimming you know is their spell only going to last so long or can they breathe indefinitely what's going to happen you know so those are those the logistics that media worked out to sort of justify an underwater adventure um, and then is it just about the treasure or are they going to encounter some underwater race that you know they want to make an alliance with what is it that Drives them to be underwater in the first place. Yeah. Right? I mean, I guess that's the same with what would make you go into a dungeon in the first place. What are you crazy? But, you know, well, so. I guess
2: I guess just some sexy ladies under the water was right. enough for Fafford and Grey Mouser. <laughs>
1: it usually is. Yeah. Um, there is something I want to check out, though. So, one of my favorite um, game authors, Zarkov Kowalski. I don't know he, him. Um, he a lot for Lamentations. Oh, thousand Thousand Dead Babies, Nose of Levneck, all those great titled uh, games. But there's one that he called Under the Waterless Sea. Huh. And um, I haven't picked it up yet. I'm, I am going to do that soon. But allegedly, there there might be some good mechanics or reads. Or yeah, it's a Polynesian city, and there's some like underwater uh, rules.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's his own one. But he also writes a lot for um, James Aradge at Lamentations yes. of the Flame Princess. And he did um, Scenic Dun- what, scenic myth. Dun- oh,
2: I have that. Yeah, One yeah, of yeah. The, oh. the
0: coolest resources I've ever seen. Right. Mm-hmm. I think if the, if it's not that one one of the other adventures was also written as a sort of tsunami benefit adventure back in the day so that the proceeds from that were benefiting um, around the time the you know the the yeah. Asian tsunami hit mm-hmm. and you know, for, for the Philippines. he definitely has a Indonesian uh, I think there's one that's sort of a very Filipino feel in there so, okay yeah kowalski's a very interesting writer and he's definitely um, drawing on different strands that we don't necessarily always think of when we're, when we're doing our gaming. So I think Absolutely. he's definitely worth checking out as a gaming designer.
2: Now, yeah. speaking of geese, cause we were talking about geese earlier when I was talking about um, um, Fritz Leiber's exploration of alcoholism and like losing your own free will. You know, this is a, a common theme with the characters and geese is a great old school spell. You know, you can cast geese on somebody and you now have to make them go on this quest for you. And that's pretty fun. But as a judge, as a dungeon master, having your your players put under a guise by some powerful patron or some supernatural entity, and now they're forced to go forth on this adventure, is that fun or is that lame? What do you guys think?
0: Hmm. Question. I mean, I think a lot of players are now used to sort of like the adventure path, so they just kind of play the adventure that's put in front of them. So you could just say, "Yeah, you're a geese. Like, Why am I doing this? Why well, you're a geese?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then just I like can't wait and go on with that. Yeah, know?
2: it is. It is pretty rail. It's 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 the ultimate railroad. Right. It's like you literally have no choice but to do this. But is 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 that still fun?
1: So not not to advertise, but I am working on something right now that. Um, I want to put out by the end of the year just to advertise <laughs> it's called uh, one of us uh, sideshow salvation in a dystopian dust bowl. So yes. basically it's a DCC reskin where you are a member of a traveling sideshow traveling freak show. And yes. you are an indentured servant for a patron called the madam who's kind of like in the lead um, caravan wagon. And as you carry out missions for her collecting relics for her, Um, you were granted powers, but I'm being very intentional that when she sends you on these do or die missions to retrieve these relics, that there are a lot of um, NPCs that you'll come across that are former members of her sideshow that have uh, defected. So yes, I'm, she's telling you to go on these missions. Me and as the GM is setting up the adventure that you're going on this mission, you need to, to get this thing. But within that mission, you are going to be challenged as to why are you doing this why why are you on this side i kind of like that free will i don't think it's railroading because i'm giving the opportunity to make a choice to you know jump off the ship and join the the other pirates I like that. So to speak.
2: And in kind of a one-shot environment where you're playing like at Drinking and Dragons or at a convention or something, you know, obviously you just go along with the adventure because, I mean, you you, you just do it because that's part of the game. But when it's kind of a campaign world or a sandbox world – it is nice when you do have lots of choices and maybe the choice is actually I'm not going to go on this adventure. Yeah. Like this, the, the, the madam wants me to do this, but I'm not really interested in that. And I'm going to go off and do this other thing. And I might end up having to deal with some repercussions of that because of my refusal to go on this adventure. Sure.
0: Um, at, at that same time, that doesn't mean we have to take the geese off the table. Just what you said actually creates the other opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. By, by not right. going on the adventure, you've actually created another opportunity in a way. Oh, totally. Right. Or within the course of the geese, um finding ways to break it you know and what is the price for breaking the geese you mm-hmm. know could create spin out so it's i think it's sort of a branching thing and as long as you don't lock them into um if you don't do this if you don't do this you don't do this then you're either dead or there's no adventure right sure. but yeah create complications you know um because I think a lot of times, um, any of the great adventure stories, it's really actually an illusion of free will, right? You know, I mean, I'm not talking about role playing; I'm just talking mm-hmm. about the fiction. Yeah. Right? You know, you know, James Bond, he's taking that mission from Q. He's not saying, "Yeah, oh, I don't feel like it today. <laughs> Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> you, know, right? you know, Sam Spade. You know, some dame walks into his office and says, "Oh, Mr. Spade, won't you help me find the blah blah blah?" You know, you know, so of course he's going to do it, right? <laughs> so they have to rise to the call to adventure. So is it a keys? Is it something else? You know, rise to the call of adventure. Um, And
2: they do it because they're adventurers and James Bond does it because he's a spy. Like they they do these things because they love to do these things. You know, it's like, uh, the for and Gray Mouser talk about, and and I think it's in their first story, how like, they'd much rather have like the freedom of their life than the servitude of just like kind of a regular nine to five job. Right.
0: Right. So I think, you know, obviously, um, as players, we get very attached to our characters and they're sort, of, they're sort of avatars of us, so obviously we get a little freaked out if like, we don't feel like we're calling the shots sometimes, right? Um, I think DCC players are actually more accepting of this because we know that things are so swingy and weird and effed up in a sure. DCC game anyway that <laughs> we're a little bit more accepting of like getting mind-controlled and zapped. And <laughs> it's
2: very different than when you've got your your Pathfinder character that you spent a whole day kind of slowly building, and you've got their whole feat tree worked out, right. and you've written up a three-page
0: <laughs> backstory. Right, right. Um, and just in general, I think, you know, in old-school game, well, you still hate to have your character like, you know, okay, well... I, taken over by the, the GM you, sh, you know if you're geese or mind controlled I believe that as a judge as a GM whatever you should still have the player play that character right and um, and I think that works better in fact I think that was one of, that happened um, that was one of your last sessions right it was that was that or was that um Andrew session where Ian was was It was your session. It was uh, that we can't uh, say much about. (laughs) Oh yes, 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 yes. That's
2: that's very, very, very secret playtest.
0: We can't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the players ran with it.
2: Yes, ran with it in a in a very great in in a very fun and inspiring way. Yes.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
0: interesting. (laughs) We'll say no more. more.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, Joey, is there anything else about uh, the the collection of stories that really leapt out at you as something that like would that might
1: inspire your gaming today? Yeah, as I mentioned before, the episodic nature of the adventures, I don't have that much time to play. Um, so when it, neither do the, the people I play with. So they're all new dads. Um, so when we sit down, it's like, let's get right into the adventure. So I spend a lot of time crafting that intro to get them to where they need to be. So then they can make those kind of free will decisions. But I, I do like that. how And this is a lot like, you know, it's, it's, it's like Howard as well. You know, you can read a collection of Conan stories and there really doesn't have to be that, that linear approach. You just know that he's been somewhere. Now he's here. And now this is what you have to do. You have three hours before you have to go home. Let's jump into it. And I get that a lot from these library stories.
2: Yeah. I feel like sometimes in, in, in kind of contemporary fantasy gaming, we kind of feel like the story has to keep going and that we can't really have like a, and now we fast forward, a day, a week, a right. month, a year, it doesn't really matter how long we fast forwarded, yeah. but now we're just, here. You, you returned at the end of the last session, and now I'm telling you, yeah. time has passed, and <laughs> this is what's happening right now.
1: Right. And what I do with my players, because they're, they're so great, I'll just start off the session, okay, it's been you know six months since you destroyed that Kraken. What has happened since then? Which oh, leaves cool. a lot of plot seeds for me to pull from that I didn't necessarily prepare for, just off the cuff, to, to get the session even deeper.
0: So Joe, actually you mentioned since a lot of your players are new too, are they also sort of starting to investigate the fiction as well? Or is that sort of, uh, on? A, you know, I mean, I'm sure that everyone's got different spots in their gaming life or, or you know, reading life where they're at, but are, are any of them sort of bringing that to the table as well?
1: Well, I'm railroading them <laughs> with that. So
0: uh, every time we
1: game, I'll bring a stack of books and I'll pass them out and I'll say, check this out. This reminds me of your character or, this reminds me of something um, that we experienced in the last session. Or you have to read this. This is a cornerstone of right um, our favorite. That's, hobby. that's the
0: educator in you, right? That is the
1: educator in me. I can't shake it. It's in my blood.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about um, what about the, the 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 kids you teach? Are you introducing them to that that kind of stuff too, as well? In any extent, I have.
1: I, they were some of my first guinea pigs when I was um, just getting into the hobby. Um, you know, Friday free time. Uh, you know, that's when Harry Potter was big and I said, all right, let's, let's try this. You guys are all at Hogwarts. And that's when I practiced some um, spell checks and, you know, <laughs> reflex saves and how that all works. And I think, I think it stuck with some of them. I ran into some of them, uh, at the mall and they were checking out some, some D and books and some other things. I'm like, Oh, all right. The next generation, it's stuck, but it's great. It's great for social, it's great for social, emotional learning and, you know, navigating social situations that, uh, you know, right on the spot. Okay. This happens. Um, what do you choose to do? So I always there. There is a lot of great social skills to be harvested from these games.
2: Absolutely, and I'll never forget the first time I met your son, and he was like excitedly <laughs> telling me about his D and D character. Uh, I, I I can never remember what 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 is what was your son's D character? Oh, oh
1: man! So my, <laughs> this cracks me up, Jeff. My son Elvis um, is he just he's seven. He's going to turn eight soon, and he came up with a DCC character named Igor Delamante and I have absolutely no idea where that name came from but he is he is a hardcore elf who loves setting stuff on fire and tying swords to ropes and then swinging them around to attack
2: <laughs> and Elvis will tell you about Igor Delamonte for like, as long as you want to listen, it's amazing. <laughs> and he's so excited. And like, he's like, yeah, I, I had this magic sword and I got it from, I, I, we killed, so we killed these crystal monsters and. <laughs> he's so That's what we're doing it's this adorable. afternoon.
1: I promised him that um, he could DM a session with some of the neighborhood kids that he's getting into it. So, and even cool. coral, my, my daughter, coral, she just turned five <laughs> and uh, she has her character, Bella. Um, with her one spell, which is the pink fist. (laughs) It's kind of like a Green Lantern type ability, but um, she always goes for uh, very extreme vital organs with the pink fist.
2: (laughs) Now, did you come up with the pink fist or was this her creation? No,
1: I said she wanted to be a witch. And I said, okay, so you get to come up with a spell. And it just came out, pink fist. And I I said, well, what does the pink fist do? And she just looked at me. She goes, anything. Anything. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say no to that.
2: Of course, <laughs> that's amazing.
0: Well, you know, and then uh, you know, there's going to be the inevitable day with the trauma when their their first player character gets killed. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's come very, very close. But as a uh, as a DCC
1: judge um, and a dad, <laughs> there's like that balance there. I have to like.
0: <laughs> try you get to strike yeah.
2: <laughs> that's hilarious yeah I just ran DCC for a group of 11 year old girls the other day and that was so much fun and uh, we were running a funnel so they each had four characters each and every time I would just like pull a stamp out I' would just <laughs> smack it and they'd be like, hey <laughs> and their eyes would get great. all big and they'd start laughing <laughs> okay Joey well I think we're gonna wrap up unless you have anything else burning that you want to that you want to bring up
1: I just want to thank you both so much for having me on. Um, I've learned a lot from your podcast and and Jeff from playing with you and hanging out. So keep up the great work. This is an amazing library of work that is, um, I'm glad it's coming back to the surface again with this kind of uh, OSR revival and renaissance that we're going through right now. It's a great time to be a gamer. So thank you for keeping that torch burning, both of you.
2: Thanks, buddy. And I really appreciate that. And and, and thank you for, for drinking and dragons. It's an amazing event. And I, I think you're doing a great job of spreading the gospel of DCC at them as well.
0: Right. And Joe, awesome. I'd definitely like to go to that one of these years. But uh, how can they find drink, How can people find drinking and dragons if they want to uh, join or participate?
1: So you can go to nlcrpg.org. So it's New London County Role Players Guild. We're going to be transitioning over to that. We're becoming a nonprofit. So, um, so that's going to be where you get a lot of the information, but we're still going to also be on, uh, you know, facebook.com slash drinking and dragons. And we'll probably have an event probably in late July, early August as everything goes well. And Hoy, you have a VIP pass, my man. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hope to see you, uh, if not at that one, then the following one. So Absolutely. So much fun. Uh, that is it for us today. Uh, we are uh, going to be back uh, sometime this summer. The next episode will be...
2: Yeah. So one. after this, episode 30 will be A Merritt's Creep, Shadow, Creep. And episode 31 will be Lee Brackets, The Halfling, and Other Stories.
0: Terrific. Okay. So if you're looking for us, you can find us in the usual spots at Penix and Book Uh, If you want to drop us a note, it's at appendixandbookclub at gmail.com. And uh, you can also join us in the uh, live uh, meetup group, uh, meetup.com slash DCCNYC. And also,
2: I got to say, I'm moving to Cleveland very, very shortly. And this is the last time that Hoy and I will be living in the same city while we're recording. So, moving forward this is our last time recording in this studio here so we'll be at separate lo- <clears throat> excuse me separate got locations in the future got a little worked up got a little emotional a little verklempt right. well,
0: i'm sure we'll uh, you know every time you're back in the city we'll just shanghai you for a very special episode
2: <laughs> <laughs> sounds incredible
0: <laughs> congratulations jeff oh thanks buddy okay everybody so see you in the stacks read on
1: Gravity is closed.